0: So, uh, good morning. Good morning. It's really an honor to be back up here, um, as it's always been an honor uh, to preach and to be with you. Um, and uh, so, wow, I'm kind of nervous. Like it's been—I haven't been up here on a Sunday. This is crazy. Um, so, we're going to talk about love uh, this morning. What is it? How do we grow in love? How do we increase and abound? in love for one another and for all people. Uh, We are in the middle of a sermon series through the letter uh, First Thessalonians. So this is the letter of Paul and his missionary companions, Silas and Timothy. It's their letter to a fledgling church uh, in Thessalonica. Um, and so we are in First Thessalonians chapter 3, verses 6 through 13. Um, but I'm going to start reading all the way back in chapter 2, verse 17, just so you get the whole flow. Uh, so you can open your Bibles to First Thessalonians chapter 2. Uh, we will also have it here up on the screen. So I'm going to ask you all, if you can, to rise, to stand up for the reading of God's word. Why don't you just take one moment here just to silence yourself before the Lord in your heart? Verse 17. But since we were torn away from you, brothers, for a short time, in person, not in heart, We endeavored the more eagerly and with great desire to see you face to face because we wanted to come to you. I, Paul, again and again, but Satan hindered us. For what is our hope or crown of boasting before our Lord Jesus at his coming? Is it not you? You are our glory and our joy. Speaking to the Thessalonians. Therefore, when we could bear it no longer, we were willing to be left behind at Athens alone. And we sent Timothy, our brother and God's co-worker in the gospel of Christ to establish you and exhort you in your faith that no one be moved by these afflictions. For you yourselves know that we were destined for this. That is affliction. For when we were with you, we kept telling you beforehand that we were to suffer affliction, just as it has come to pass, and just as you know. For this reason, when I could bear it no longer, I sent Timothy to learn about your faith, for fear that somehow the tempter had tempted you, and our labor would have been in vain. Verse 6, our passage for this morning. For now we live, if you are standing fast in the Lord. For what thanksgiving can we return to God for you, for all the joy that we feel for your sake before our God, as we pray most earnestly night and day, that we may see you face to face and supply what is lacking in your faith. Now, may our God and Father himself and our Lord Jesus direct our way to you. And may the Lord make you increase and abound in love for one another and for all, as we do for you, so that he may establish your hearts blameless in holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus with all his saints. Amen. God bless the reading of his word. You may have... A seat. So, what do we notice as we read this passage together this morning? Uh, First, you may have noticed that Paul twice mentions the glorious return, the coming of Jesus uh, that he is anticipating and looking forward to. Uh, In fact, uh, you may notice that it's something Paul mentions in every single chapter of 1 Thessalonians, the return of Jesus Christ as their great hope. Uh, You also might have noticed that it sounds like the letter's ending, doesn't it? Um, It's this big crescendo at the end of chapter 3, and he even starts chapter 4 by saying, finally, but then he goes on for two more chapters. Uh, it's kind of like when one of us preachers says in closing, and then you start getting ready and we go for 15 more minutes. Okay. Paul's doing that. Um, and so it's, it is roughly the end of the first like half of the letter. Uh, so it's a significant transitional moment. He's finishing the story here and then he's going to move on to implications and clarifications and expectations for this congregation. Um, The last thing we might notice is that Paul is kind of a basket case, is he not? Like, he is an emotional wreck about the Thessalonians. Why? Well, as the story goes, in Acts chapter 17, Paul had come to Thessalonica from Philippi, bruised and battered. And he preached the gospel in the synagogue, it says, for three Sabbaths, so three weeks. We call that a, a mini-sermon series here at VCC. That's not even a sermon series. Like, that's like Heath's on vacation, you know, and one of us gets a few weeks. Like, it's not even a full thing. So for three weeks, he proclaims the gospel. And the gospel, if you're new, just means good news. And it's the good news that the Messiah, the Savior, the King, the anointed one that Israel had waited for, had arrived. That's the news Paul is spreading. And he preaches that news for three weeks. And then he spends time opening the uh, Hebrew scriptures, what we call the Old Testament, with them in the synagogue. And he's trying to convince them that it wasn't expected that this Messiah would die on a cross and rise again from the dead, but he's wanting to show them uh, that it was necessary for this to happen. And so then, in a short time, revival breaks out in Thessalonica. And some Jews respond, and a a huge amount of non-Jews, Gentiles or Greeks, uh, respond to the good news. And uh, Luke points out that many prominent, powerful women in the city join this fledgling Thessalonian congregation. And it's very exciting to the point that some of the other Jews, Paul's fellow Jews, get jealous of Paul and they incite a mob and they drive him out of town shortly thereafter. They even follow him to Berea. Um, And so at the beginning of this letter to the Thessalonians, Paul just gushes about his memory of those days. You know, how they responded to the gospel so enthusiastically, and they got to work immediately learning and loving one another and taking care of one another and the poor in their midst. But now, here in chapter 2 and 3, he laments how quickly, right, he was torn from them. That it was only a few weeks he got with them in the midst of so much conflict and trouble. And affliction and persecution. And so he's a wreck emotionally because he longs with everything in him, every fiber in his being to see them face to face and find out how they're doing. You know, how's it going with them? You know, how we felt sometimes during this last year, right? How is everyone doing? Um, but of course, no internet, no way of communicating other than sending a letter. So recall in uh, chapter two, Paul likened himself to a nursing mother. Remember that? Uh, chapter two, verse seven, compares himself and Paul and Timothy in their mindset to a nursing mother. Um, my, my wife uh, gave birth uh, exactly a month ago today to our son Banks. And uh, right before the, the whole pushing business, uh, the, the nurses lost the heartbeat Again, this happened all three times. It's like a family tradition, a terrible one, uh, because the umbilical cord again was wrapped tightly around our child's neck. And so all's happy, as happy as it can be (laughs) during labor, uh, and then all of a sudden it wasn't, and the room goes from four people, five including our baby, uh, to 20 in like two seconds, okay, because the whole NICU team. Uh, rushes in just in case they need to whisk him away for emergency treatment. And uh, ultimately, thankfully, he didn't have to, but I know some of you have had this experience where your child has been taken away immediately after birth. And, you know, so you felt this acute sense of anxiety, right? You've just given birth to this fragile little life, and everything in you... Like even just like hormonally, primally is screaming, you know, that you need to hold this baby skin to skin, right? And so, uh, and it's all you can think about. You're begging the nurses for an update. It's amazing. These three men, Paul, Silas, and Timothy, that's the mindset that they say they have. They've had three weeks with this primarily non-Jew church uh, to start it from scratch And then they're they're ripped away. Uh, They warn them that they were going to face affliction and persecution, and then they're gone. Uh, I was surprised to learn this a few years ago, but in the early church, uh, bishops would take two years to properly instruct, to catechize uh, a non-Jew in the faith before baptizing them. Why? Because there's so much to learn, right? We're all still learning, right? So much to learn. And there was a huge social cost to following Jesus. So they had to make sure people knew what they were signing up for. So they would take two years with this process. Paul got three weeks. Paul got three weeks. And so he's terrified that when suffering inevitably would come, people would bolt. And so he makes this great sacrifice. And he sends Timothy on a dangerous journey to go into the heart of the beast to check on them, to see how they're doing. And this was something of a tradition for Paul. Uh, As we'll see, he also sent Timothy to the Philippians and he sent Timothy to the Corinthians as well. And Paul describes Timothy here in Thessalonians as his brother, but in Corinthians, he describes him as his beloved child, his son in the Lord. And he says this because, He doesn't have anyone like Timothy, he says. He doesn't have anyone who shares his mindset, who, who, like Paul, is genuinely concerned for the welfare of the church. In Philippians, Paul talks about how there's a lot of self-promoting pastors and apostles out there. But Timothy, just like Paul, has that mindset where it's not about him. He's genuinely concerned for their welfare. And so Paul makes this great sacrifice of sending his son. So... Verse six: Timothy miraculously returns with some good news, some gospel, like cold water to a thirsty soul, so is good news from a far country," Proverbs 25:25. 25, 25. Timothy returns with the news that the Thessalonians are still flourishing. They're doing wonderfully. They're flourishing in faith and love just as when he left. And they remember Paul and his companions fondly and long to see them just as they do. And this brings great comfort to Paul's soul. And here's where Paul talks about his comfort in a way that I'm hoping makes us a little uncomfortable this morning. I'll say that again. Paul talks about his comfort in a way that might make us a little uncomfortable this morning. So verse 7, notice what he says. In our distress and affliction, we have been comforted about you through your faith. Then, verse 8, for now we live if you are standing fast in the Lord. What's going on here? Paul says that this good news from Timothy has brought comfort to his soul and the souls of his companions in the midst of their own loneliness and distress and affliction, which, okay. But now we live if you are standing fast? So now not only the comfort, but like the very life of the apostles is somehow contingent upon the steadfastness of a congregation they spent three weeks with? Is Paul exaggerating here? Do you, do you see what I'm getting at? Let's, uh, let's say it another way. What if Timothy had come back with bad news? <laughs> uh, what if the Thessalonians had given up and given in and said, yeah, this Jesus thing, it's, it's not for us. I think we had like a mountaintop high camp experience, Paul. We're just, we're going to move on with our lives now. Are the apostles so flimsy in faith that they can't draw strength and comfort and joy in life directly from the Lord. But instead they're dependent for joy and life on some fledgling congregation a few hundred miles away in Thessalonica. Like what's the matter, Paul? Can't you do all things through Christ who strengthens you? Didn't you write that? Haven't you learned the secret of contentment? and peace? Aren't aren't you supposed to be this model of mature, resilient faith that's not a victim of circumstances? Is this some kind of like spiritual codependency, like a controlling mother or a disappointed dad? What happened to being anxious for nothing? Can't you just let go and let God, Paul? Like, what's the deal here? I'm really pressing this, okay? Uh... The answer to this question—it's—it's it's important. I really wrestled with it. I think it's intimately related to the rest of this passage, and I think it matters deeply for our own lives today, in our quest uh, for comfort and joy, as individuals and as a whole church community. So, to get there, uh, let's take a big step back and ask a bigger question: What does Paul want for the church? What is Paul's ultimate goal for the Thessalonian church? As their pastor. Well there are two places. Where we find this at least. Uh, The first is here at the end of this passage. I'll reread it. This is verse 12 and 13. Of chapter 3. May the Lord. Make you increase and abound in love. For one another. And for all. So not just for your people. For all. As we do for you. So that. Abound in love so that he may establish your hearts blameless in holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus with all his saints. So Paul's big hope is that they would abound in love for one another and for all, so that they would stand blameless before Christ when they when Christ returns. Second, love this passage. This is chapter five, verses fifteen through eighteen. See that no one repays anyone evil for evil, but always seek to do good to one another and to everyone. Again, to one another and to all. Rejoice always. Pray without ceasing. Give thanks in all circumstances. For this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. You ever ask that question? What's God's will for my life? Well, here it is. Rejoice always, pray without ceasing, give thanks in all circumstances. This is the way, as Mando would say. (laughs) Uh, In some, not in closing, I'm not there yet. Okay, don't get excited. All right, uh, uh, a flourishing church, a flourishing church abounds in love for one another and for all in an environment of constant rejoicing, thanksgiving, and prayer. No matter what's happening outside, constant rejoicing, thanksgiving, and prayer. This type of community is a glimpse of heaven on earth. This is a church prepared to meet Jesus. And that is what Paul is doing in all of his ministry and his letters. He is preparing the bride, the church, to meet the bridegroom, Jesus. And here is what the church, the bride, looks like when she is prepared, ready for her big day. Loving, joyful, thankful, prayerful. Loving, joyful, thankful, prayerful. Not grumbling and fighting amongst themselves. Paul and his companions are laboring. They're planting. They're watering. They're trusting God for growth in these things. Love, joy, thankfulness. So I think this is important. A church that is blameless and holy before Christ is not sinless. It's not sinless. A church that is blameless and holy before Christ is characterized by love. This is why Peter says love covers a multitude of sins. In fact, it might be the holier the church, the more sin it contains because it's growing and attracting sinners as a hospital attracts patients. But this is the point at which we need to get very practical and concrete about love. Very practical and concrete, because we can get very nonsensical about love, right? Some of us just love, love so much. We can say something like, love is love, grammar be damned, you know? Uh, Because that's our generation's, all you need is love. So just love, love is love, and that's that. We don't, no, no more conversation about it. Others of us, you know, too much love talk, our brow furrows, we get kind of nervous, you know, because we've got to balance it out with holiness, right? So we need to be very clear about love, very clear about love, because Paul thinks it is so important that he says it is the one thing you need lots of to stand before Christ as blameless on the last day. You might say love is the only thing we bring with us. Remember that for Paul, if you have everything else and you don't have love, you have nothing, right? Give all your money to the poor, be martyred for your faith, have no love. You got nothing, you got nothing. Faith isn't faith if it doesn't work itself out in love. Love alone is eternal. So what is it? Well, here's how Jesus described love. Where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Sounds nice. Let's dig into it. Heart follows treasure. Heart follows treasure. In other words, you you treasure, you care about, you are genuinely concerned about what you invest in. I'll give a tacky example. Okay, uh, let's say I'm a fair weather Giants fan, which I'll admit is true. <laughs> uh, okay, uh, but now imagine I, uh, my, you know, my son's six. <clears throat> He's playing t ball. He's getting interested in baseball. Imagine I buy season tickets. You know, I have a lot more money than I have, and I buy season tickets to Giants games, and I go to every single game with my son. What's going to happen? Am I going to still be a fair weather Giants fan? No. I'm going I'm to get emotionally involved in every win and every loss. We often think it's like you know uh, a true fan watches every game. That's not true. Watch every game, you become a true fan. All right? Jesus is a realist about love, but Jesus says this: we are to store up treasures in heaven, not on earth. We are to get emotionally involved, invested in heaven. And this is exactly what Paul is modeling for the Thessalonians. See, a better way to say love is eternal is to say this, that only people are eternal. Only people are eternal. And Paul is investing in the Thessalonians. Think about it this way. He put his body on the line to bring the gospel to them, didn't he? In imitation of God, Paul sent his beloved son, Timothy, to them. He poured his blood, his sweat, and his tears into this letter. He says he sacrificed sleep. He prayed day and night without ceasing, thanking God for them. They are his children. He says they are his glory and his joy. They are the treasure that he is storing up. In heaven, and that is love. See, to love someone is to invest sacrificially in them to the point where you are genuinely concerned for their earthly and eternal welfare. To to invest sacrificially in them to the point where you are emotionally involved. Love is emotionally involved. Like, have you ever just noticed? If you Read the Old Testament, what a basket case God is about Israel. Why? Because he loves them. Love is to be so tangibly involved that you become emotionally involved. And that's why it takes faith and it takes risk. I've had the joy of um, a meeting on Zoom with a, a group, some, some of you, uh, some outside the church, uh, reading the works of C.S. Lewis. Uh, We just finished the book, The Four Loves, and I want to read a passage from the last chapter of The Four Loves where Lewis talks about this. He says this, To love it all is to be vulnerable. Love anything and your heart will be wrung and possibly broken. If you want to make sure of keeping your heart intact, you must give it to no one, not even an animal. Wrap it around with hobbies and little luxuries, Avoid all entanglements. Lock it up safe in the casket of your selfishness. But in that casket, safe, dark, motionless, airless, your heart will change. It will not be broken. It will become unbreakable, impenetrable, irredeemable. To love is to be vulnerable. This is the only safe place from the heartbreaks of love. Is hell. So we come back to our question. What would have happened if Timothy came back with bad news? That the Thessalonians' faith was not genuine. They've gone back from serving the living God to serving idols. They've ceased to meet together as a family of Jews and Gentiles, but they're back divided and suspicious of one another again. What would have happened to Paul? Paul's heart would have been wrung and possibly broken. But here's the key. You might even call it the secret. A broken heart is the only way to a transformative encounter with God. A broken heart is the only way to the one who binds up the brokenhearted and saves the crushed in spirit. A broken heart is the only way to the one in whose presence is fullness of joy. A broken heart is the way, the only way, that we become people of love and joy, thanksgiving and prayer who are ready to meet Jesus. That's why Lewis goes on to say this on the next page. We shall draw nearer to God, which is how we transform. Draw nearer to God, not by trying to avoid the sufferings inherent in all loves, but by accepting them and offering them to him, throwing away all defensive armor. If our hearts need to be broken, and if he chooses this as the way in which they should break, so be it. So be it. VCC, do we want to be a community that is abounding in love for one another and for all people? Do we want to stand radiant before Christ on that day or shrink back in terror? Do we want to be marked by rejoicing, unceasing prayer and gratitude in all circumstances, even in our current climate? Do we want that for our family, for our calm group, for our children? Of course we do. Of course we do. But there is only one narrow way. Invest. It's to put our heart at risk. Invest in people, in relationships. Only they are eternal. Right? Like, so let's not just come back to church and back to normal, and back to school, and back to sports, and become spread thin like we were pre-pandemic. We're going to have to say no to a lot. Let us invest selectively and sacrificially. Maybe in one thing. A couple just easy examples in a church context of what this looks like. It can be as simple as planting a new small group, a new calm group, even though all your best friends are in the one you've been in for years. It can look like, um, man, Brett Johnson, um, Brenda, uh, who, Brenda Black, who served, started with sixth graders and, and pastored them all the way until they were seniors in high school. Nobody even talks about that. Wow, right? Investing in people, crying with them, late nights, praying for them, It can look like having another kid or adopting a kid, even though your family's comfortable. Invest in people. Invest in the eternal. That is how heaven invades earth. Now, important point, will these things go swimmingly? No, they will not. Paul says, expect much affliction. Expect much affliction. Heaven invades earth through a cross. Right? That teenage kid will reject Christ. The project or the ministry won't go as planned. There'll be a pandemic. <laughs> this is what happens. I can be the first to tell you uh, as a ministry person, which is by definition being invested in service, it's just full of disappointments and heartbreaks. Anytime you launch into a ministry, be prepared. Your heart's going to be wrung and broken. This is why um, if you ever meet like people who've been in ministry for a long time, they're either like the just most alive and full of joy and love people you've ever met or the most bitter and burnt out people you've ever met. And there's very little in between. I hesitated to say that. Um, When you invest tangibly until you are involved emotionally, when you love, your heart will be wrung and possibly broken. And that's precisely the point. It is in immersing ourselves into a community and a family with a thick web of countless cares and embracing those cares and those disappointments and those deaths and those crosses and those losses of that community as our own. Accepting and then unceasingly praying those cares as our own that we are transformed into divine love. So in closing, really, in closing, to the extent that we are thriving, flourishing as a community is thanks to God. It's thanks to God and his grace working invisibly through so many of you who continue to invest, who have continued to invest even through a pandemic and who face those disappointments with the church and with community life, and you accept them, and you pray them, and you process them, and you know the secret, and your heart burns with the joy of it. And to the extent that you are maybe not thriving in faith and in love, um, might it be, there's all sorts of reasons for that, but might it be is that you have merely gossiped those disappointments and those frustrations, and you've further protected your heart in your assets of time, talent, and treasure so as not to get further hurt. Maybe. Pray about it. Uh, Wherever you are this morning, you, as I say, you are not dead, so God is not done. And let us come now to the table of grace. Um, Let's be thankful for God's merciful investment in us. He gave us his very body, his blood, and his spirit to us in love